Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So today, I think I've never been so excited and nervous about having a guest on, which by the way... I feel the pressure. I feel real pressure. Like um, Honestly, I just, I really didn't think that you would come on and... In a moment of madness, I actually went on Instagram and sent a DM. So that is a real sign of the times. And somehow she said yes. So I'm going to give you some hints and see if you can guess who it is before I say. So uh, <laughs> funny enough, I'll, I'll start by saying that she is um, an MP. And the only MP I actually know is Anne Widdicombe after we did um, the Celebrity Big Brother Year of the Woman. And they are both definitely forces of nature, but I think complete polar opposites and I'm obviously not going to get political but I'd say that um, my guest today is making I say we're not going to get political we're absolutely going to get political I, I hope you're going to I'm not going to ask me to go trekking because I'm I'm so out of shape it's really bad <laughs> no, we're not here to talk about any any shapes especially as a mum so, yeah I honestly I've been in awe of what you're doing for years and I know to everyone listening you'll know who she is as well and regardless of what party you vote for I think you'll all agree that she's just an absolute powerhouse she's doing so much for her constituents but um, more specifically for, for for women for parents and specifically for mums she's been a member of parliament for the London constituency of Walthamstow since 2010 within 18 months been elected she was on Ed Miliband's front bench I love this quote which by the way <clears throat> I got from Wikipedia but The Independent described her in 2014 as one of the brightest lights of Labour's new generation but also haranguing and aggressive which we could argue is potentially sexist terminology to talk about a woman but I'm sure we'll get on to that and um, she's just campaigned for so much and at great expense to herself she's had so many threats but just touching on some of the things that she's um, campaigned for um, the No More Page 3 campaign Stop the Sun newspaper from public Publishing pictures of Topless Glamour models, which retrospectively is just the craziest thing that that was in a paper. Um, she campaigned to extend access to abortion um, for people in Northern Ireland. Um, I can, I'm sure you can imagine the threat she received from anti-abortion activists because of that. And since becoming a mum, I know that you'll have heard about her fighting for maternity cover. And I know that you will have seen her in the Commons with her baby strapped to her. Um, something that actually recently she was reprimanded for and um, she's been campaigning to make misogyny a hate crime. Arguably, uh, her most important role is she's a mum of two and it's the absolutely brilliant Stella Creasy. 
feel very embarrassed now. I feel like I've got a lot to live up to. I mean, that is only like the tip of the iceberg of um, things that you've campaigned for as well. So I, I just think you're amazing. I'm so grateful that you've come on. Thank you. That's that's very kind to say. I have to say it's a weird job to be an MP because there's no job description. So you can do as much or as little as you want. And most people now presume that you're doing sod all, let's put it that way. So actually if people, you know, it, it's nice if people recognise that you are trying your best, especially because I'm a I'm an opposition backbench MP. I you know I have very little access to the traditional levers of power, so everything you're doing is about trying to change a conversation, and that's quite hard work. Yeah, and I think what's so clear about you is like how much you care for your constituents. And I don't profess, by the way, to know a lot about politics, as I'm sure a lot of people say as well, but. Um, I just think it's amazing like what you're doing to kind of like shatter um, and also create conversation around um, women in parliament and just even more in general, like mums and maternity and like the way we view mums in the workplace. Well, it's all, it's all interconnected because my general feeling is that if the place that makes the law on how you should treat uh, a new parent or indeed any parent in the workplace isn't very good at how they treat parents what hope have we got of them making good laws to help make sure that more parents can combine work and family life and it's particularly mums that are just absent from our political life at both a local and a national level all the evidence shows us that basically if you have a family men tend to go into politics and you know everyone gets very excited about pictures of them with their kids showing what great dads they are and the mums get told oh wait until the kids are older wait, it's also difficult, all, you know, really, well, who's going to look after them as if there isn't somebody else around possibly or or that somehow being a mum is is a, is a barrier to being able to be a representative. That means that we miss out on lots of really brilliant women from our politics. Um, and actually, I say, from wider society as well, because it's not just in politics this is happening, it's happening in the media, it's happening in business, it's happening in public services as well, all the time, as soon as you have a baby, people are kind of like, oh, right, we're just going to write off the next 10 to 15 years of your life. And you sort of think, hang on, when did, when did I sign up for that? I don't remember that in the antenatal clinic. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting because before I was a mum, I, I have always considered myself a feminist and really progressive. And I never, ever considered so much of being a mum like a feminist issue and obviously when I became a mum and um, learned so many statistics around um, you know 54,000 women a year having to leave jobs because um, they can't afford childcare or um, can't get flexible working and all of this stuff I was like why is why are more people not talking about this and I realized actually that I had so much like deep-rooted misogyny about my expectations of what a mum was and I think that's one of the reasons I was so scared of being a mum but also maybe didn't relate to wanting to be a mum because I'd always considered myself well I'm a career woman I'm a career woman and now that's something that when I hear it it really irks me because people will say to me like you know friends are I haven't had a baby because I chose my career and in my head I'm like I choose my career I still choose my career nobody ever says I'm a working dad it's like and actually they should do because one of the big elements to fixing this is making sure that dads can play the role that you know most dads want to play, which is to be part of their kids' lives too, and that people aren't either shaming them in a workplace or making it financially impossible too. But until we do that, it's absolutely women who end up paying the price. And it's women who, like you say, you, you, you soak all this stuff in. I think the thing that's 
struck me. I mean, look, I, I've, I've become a mum later in my life because I've struggled to have children for many years. And a lot of these battles, I thought we'd had. Like, I, I really thought we'd made more progress about all this stuff. And actually, if I'm honest, it's often women who are the toughest crowd and the most critical and the most kind of, oh, you know, this is self-indulgent. Don't talk about it. You, you know, everybody struggles. Get over yourself. But you think, hang on a minute. This is like a massive moment where if feminism is like the personal is the political, this is one of the most personal things you can do. And we're just writing off swathes of women purely for having babies. And that's insane to me. Absolutely insane. So just to be clear, like the current rules in Parliament state, so are MPs not allowed to take maternity leave? So Parliament is an exceptional case, right? Because I mean, because Parliament just, we all think we're super special sausages because we're MPs. So we don't have any uh, employment rights at all. And so since 2010, since I got elected, we've worked out there have been 23 babies born to women in Parliament. And that's not necessarily 23 different women, which if you think about it over 12 years in any other workplace is extraordinary. So few babies have been born. And it's not really rocket science as to why that's happening because we make it so difficult to combine being a mum with being a member of parliament. I mean, when I had my first child, I went to the parliamentary authorities and said, oh, hi, I'm going to have a baby. I think, you know, well, it's, I'd been pregnant several times before then, but this time I thought, okay, this, this one might happen. Um, so I need some maternity cover. And they were like, no, MPs don't take maternity leave. And I remember kind of looking at, looking at my growing tummy thinking, yeah, I think I am going to probably have to do that. <laughs> Some of my brilliant colleagues have, have bought this. It's not just been me who's been finding this. So, like, obviously, Harriet Harman, everyone's aware of, was an extraordinary force for just going, what is going on? Where are the women? And then Tulip Sadiq actually ended up going into Parliament, um, like, days before she was due to have a cesarean section in order to vote on the Brexit legislation because there wasn't anybody to vote for you. So if you didn't vote, and especially on something like that, which was a really close vote then it could affect the outcome. Your constituents would understandably really cross because they weren't being represented and there was nothing in place. So she managed to get a system in place called proxies, which means that for the last six months, because my, my little boy now I've got is five months old, for the last six months I've had somebody who's voted on my behalf. But that presumes that the only thing MPs do is vote. And that's like a tiny percent, about 10% of what we do is, is what you see on telly in terms of standing up in the chamber and speaking. So all the other bits of the job, the going out, working with my local community, working with campaigners, attending meetings, when there's a crisis happening, being able to be briefed about it and be able to be part of the political process. And there's absolutely nobody to cover that. And in my first pregnancy, when they said that to me, I was just like, I fought really, really hard to have children and now you're telling me at the point when this might actually happen, I've got to choose between my constituents being represented or being with this child. And that just doesn't seem right. And, you know, in any other place of work, people would have cover. Well, they just they just expected you to um, to, to muddle through. <laughs> so the expectation was that you would step aside and allow someone else to represent your constituents or that your constituents just wouldn't be represented? There was no, because nobody had thought about it at all. In fact, what they kept saying to, and they said to other women in this position is, oh, we've never really had to think about this problem before. As if the issue was us having babies rather than the fact that parliament, due to represent everybody in the country, hadn't thought about what would happen if some of its members had babies. I kind of shamed them and went public and said, this is crazy. And so they gave me funding to allow me to, and I had just appointed somebody and I called them my locum. So I basically looked at this woman, she's a brilliant local woman, I'd never met her, she, you know, played for the job, and um, 
I, I said she's my, my maternity cover. Nobody batted an eyelid in my constituency. Indeed, I think they probably would have quite liked it if she'd stayed and I'd never come back because she was really brilliant at the job. And it made such a difference with my first pregnancy because that was during the start of the pandemic. So she had to do, and, and also I had, a, I had to do with a general election eight and a half months pregnant as well because there was no cover for that. So I was walking around trying to talk to people about why they might vote for me again and having people saying, I will vote for you if you sit down because you are so out of breath that I'm really worried about you. And it's say our politics is set up for white men of a certain age with independent means. And if you don't fit that profile, nobody thought through how to make it inclusive. And because there aren't the people in there going, well, hang on a minute, this doesn't work. How can we make this work? It, it becomes a chicken and egg syndrome. So you don't get very many people coming forward. And this time round, with my second pregnancy, so they promised me when my first one that they'd do a consultation and they'd look at this issue. They didn't do anything. There was no, they, they just, they sat on it. They argued that because some of my colleagues um, in the Labour Party were opposed to even having the conversation, that they wouldn't do anything. So I was in the position of having a second pregnancy and having to negotiate again, pregnant, about what cover that would be. Because this time round, I was like, well, I can't really ask somebody to do a job a cut price salary without a clear job title because it's having that job title that makes a difference it's like people going you know if I send my member of staff to sign people would say oh no I want to see the MP so you need somebody who has that status that people go so because the parliamentary authorities refused to let me do that a second time and bear in mind I had I got gestational diabetes so I was really really ill I mean I was keeling over going into hospital trying to negotiate all of this going please 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 can we just put something in place but equally determined that I wasn't going to ask somebody to do a job on the cheap because they hadn't thought about maternity cover. I ended up the, the day I gave birth in a phone call with the ministers full of morphine. Now, God knows what I said to them because it was about what was happening in Afghanistan because they'd said they wouldn't let a member of staff and they'd only let the MP in. So without someone to cover that role, I had no choice because I didn't want to let families in Afghanistan who were terrified about what was happening to their relatives down. And it's been like that for the last five months. So it's a very long-winded way of saying, like, there's nothing has changed. And you seeing me going into Parliament with my baby, like, I don't really want to do that. Anybody who's handled a very small baby, um, you know, I, obviously I make sure he's fed, I make sure he's content. I've managed to get him to be quiet during the debate so that you can hear what I'm saying. But actually what I really wanted was cover so that I could spend time with him and not stress about making sure that my constituents weren't let down so that nobody could say, oh, well, don't vote for women of childbearing age because they might disappear. But that is what situation we're in right now. It's such a chicken and egg situation, really, isn't it? And by the way, I'm so sorry to hear about um, your losses. And also, I can't imagine what, you know, we all find pregnancy so hard. So to have, I imagine, like the fear of, like, well, with your history of loss and then gestational diabetes, having to almost like fight for what most people just get as a right, it must have just been... I can't imagine how stressful. Gestational diabetes is really terrifying because, especially if you've had pregnancy loss, because it's um, it's basically your body trying to poison your baby. Uh, and I got it really bad. I was on lots of drugs by the end of it. Um, and, and just thinking, you know, yet again, my body's just letting me down. It's not doing what I need it to do to be able to look after my baby. So that was just really terrifying in of itself. Yeah, you know, I could have done without the head of the parliamentary authorities telling me I was being a difficult woman because I was I brought my own legal representation to the meetings because I thought I spend my life telling women to stand up for their rights and fighting for their rights I've got to have somebody there to make sure I look after my own in these conversations 
I think what also what was like genuinely quite shocking and disappointing for me to discover is that actually when the decision was made to oppose um, introducing locums for maternity cover, it was actually opposed by the Women's Parliamentary Labour Party, which was obviously chaired by um, Jess Phillips, who I really like a lot of her, like of what she represents, and she's meant to be like very progressive and very feminist. Like, why, why do you think you're fighting against? Like, surely all women should be on board, whether you want to have children or not. Like, surely all women should be on board to fight for the rights of maternity. So I can't pretend to be anything other than heartbroken by some of the responses of colleagues in Parliament because, as I say, going through it twice, it was really difficult. And also say, none of this is about me anymore because um, having had my second baby and having been so ill, I, I'm never having another baby ever again. But I think about all those brilliant women I meet out in the country who would make great MPs who are just going, well, I want to have a family and I can't see how this is going to work. And I know that they're being put off by it. I understand that women are wary. They're wary that, I mean, another MP accused me of making women into victims when they have children. And... You know, there's a lot of talk about whether MPs' employment status should be set up and also that, you know, MPs shouldn't have better maternity cover than the constituents they represent. My challenge is I think we should be fighting for the highest standards in Parliament to set the tone for employers. So the irony for me was I was negotiating with a civil service organisation called the IPS at the Parliamentary Authorities that covers our budgets. And they all had six months paid maternity and paternity cover for their staff and saying, I just want what you have for my constituents. Because for me, this is ultimately about making sure that residents got represented. Because what people have tried to say to me is, oh, well, look, when I had a child, I just disappeared. I just, you know, I hid. And you think that's quite worrying that, you know, if my constituents thought I could disappear for six months and it would make no difference to anything that we were doing for them, they'd have a right to ask what I was doing the rest of the time. I understand that lots of women have different views on this. Um, Parliament right now is having an inquiry into whether you can take babies into the chamber. And that's just the wrong end of the telescope, because what I really want for this is a proper maternity cover policy so that any woman coming forward thinking about standing in politics, and we've got another election coming up maybe in the next 18 months, won't, won't think twice that that's a consideration as opposed to whether she's got the skills, the experience, the commitment to be able to do the job. But at the moment, that's the debate they want to have is whether you can take a baby into the parliamentary chamber rather than whether or not parliament is a place that has maternity cover and I, I worry that that sends the message that maternity cover isn't important because I know how many women are being discriminated against I also know that if I were a cabinet member or a senior you know if I was on the front benches there would be cover so we've got this kind of two-tier system so the attorney general when she had a baby and I fully support this had six months paid maternity cover but because I'm a backbencher, so I don't get that. Um, and it means we send the message that it's okay in workplaces to discriminate when actually the rights should be about having a baby, not what role you play in a workplace. And I think it, it just speaks to a lack of understanding about why maternity cover matters. You know, people saying to me, oh, just send a member of staff or, or, or you know, just don't, don't bother about all of this. Don't disappear for six months. Do a disservice to the role that you play because it's not maternity cover. People are saying, oh, well, MPs can take maternity leave. It's not, you can't take leave if there's no one to cover what you're doing. So that when a crisis happens, you know, I didn't just have 
people stuck in Afghanistan. I had murders in my constituency. We had flooding in my constituency. We had all sorts of issues people needed help with. Um, there are campaigns, we talked about the misogyny campaign, you know, the legislation we're trying to amend won't stop for six months whilst I take some time away. So if we're going to take up on those opportunities, somebody has to cover that role. And I know firsthand in my first pregnancy, having somebody who did that made a massive difference. So to not have that in my second pregnancy makes me even more determined that in future, women coming into politics should have that option. And indeed, dads should have the option of parental leave. Because, um, you know, either your constituents suffer or your kid does. And I don't think that's a choice anybody should have to make. I think this is like what the conversation for me is like, why it is quite frustrating is it's always a female problem. Like, you know, Boris Johnson had, she's had, what, two kids since he's been prime minister. And the presumption is that his wife is looking after the kids. So therefore it's not a male issue, but actually it should be like, obviously we're talking heterosexual relationships, but it should be an issue for both parents. And it's always seen as a woman's problem and, you know, maternity leave, flexible working, it's always an, an issue for women. Well, we saw it, we saw it during the pandemic, didn't we? Like we spent months in Parliament debating pothole funding and road cl- and you know what parents got a pat on the back for doing homeschooling and I, I knew a lot of mums who I could hear swearing at their computers when, when they heard that from the Chancellor. Like universal childcare pays for itself because it allows families to make choices that mean they can take different jobs, they can earn more and yeah they pay more in tax so it pays for itself. It's just not a conversation happening in politics right now. Like you say everything is all about mums should struggle and, and I think for a lot of women, you know, I, I put my head above the parapet and said, hold on a minute. I, I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't know why we would not want to make this easier to manage. But for a lot of women, it's almost like if you're not struggling, you're not doing it right. And that seems to me something that, that reflects that, you know, we've had it drummed into us for so long that this is it. This is the big thing. I saw a, an article in the press the other day about you know, worrying about women are putting off having babies as if it's only women who have babies. And they're like, well, I did biology. I'm pretty sure there's two people involved in that equation at the very least. And however you want to do it, modern technology and different relationships, fine. But like, there's so much pressure put on women and about motherhood that you cannot win whichever way you turn. I just don't want to play that game. I refuse to accept that it has to be this, well, shit. (laughs) And I think... I'm happy to take grief from people if we can change that. <laughs> I think what's frustrating is that you're considered selfish if you choose not to have children. Um, or, you know, people always want to know why if you decide as a woman not to have children. And we always hear the word the term child bliss as opposed to just being child free and thriving. But then we also make it so hard for women who give birth to then have careers and, you know, like maternity leave and discrimination and um, the, the cost of childcare. And, um, you know, I, I saw um, a lot of the backlash from you um, taking your baby into parliament, which, again, you shouldn't have had to do, especially so soon after giving birth. People were saying, well, what, what, why can't she just leave it at home? Or, you, you know, you earn enough to have childcare. Why can't you have childcare? But also, like, we shouldn't have to feel like we have to either go back to work. and. Well, it, it was just a very practical thing for me. Like, my, my little girl is in, is in nursery because she's two. 
but my little boy, I'm I'm breastfeeding him. So it just doesn't really make any sense to leave him with somebody. I keep running back and forth. I, there, there was another MP who attacked me for just that and then and then set out how she was doing that and it was all fine. And it sounded like an utter nightmare. <laughs> and I just thought, like, you know, because also people attack my partner. So he's like, he, he, he does huge amounts of childcare, but he can't breastfeed a baby. And when you're breastfeeding, especially with a very new baby, you know, okay, I'm not super nanny. I don't have my child on a strict, rigid timetable. Um, and I don't have a wet nurse because I'm not a character from Blackadder either. I'm just a normal mum trying to make all these things work. Um, and so, yeah, without cover, I had the baby with me. But I also had made sure that he was contented and quiet because above all, I was trying to do my job. Push Your Peak is a brand new podcast brought to you by What Bike. Join me, Louise Minchin, and some of the world's most incredible sports people to learn what it takes mentally and physically to push yourself beyond your limits. Whether you're an elite or everyday athlete, it can be hard to continually progress. How do you push yourself out of your comfort zone? Where do you go to find that inner drive? Tune in to hear these inspiring stories and take away the belief that you can achieve your own goals no matter how big or small you can find us wherever you got this podcast just search push your peak ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I just think, as you say, about how we judge women by what they look like first and what they say second, but we do it the other way around with men. But you know, you could drive yourself crazy. I mean, when I first got elected, someone said to me, oh, look, I, so I have a, a PhD, so I'm technically doctor. I only use it really with the bank manager when I'm pleading. And um, they said to me, oh, you should call yourself Dr. Creasy on the screens because, you know, as a young blonde woman, people will take you more seriously. And I was like, if people are going to judge me by my hair colour, they're only going to do it the once. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it's really hard when you're facing that relentlessly. So, um you know, I always had people, obviously, as I was becoming more and more pregnant, commenting on my weight online. 
and this sort of thing. And you just sort of think, I don't want to particularly have to be the person having to respond to this all the time or telling other women that they don't have to put up with this. I just want it to stop. Because what I worry about is, say, is all those brilliant campaigners who just see it and think, I don't want any part of this. Yeah. How do you deal with like the constant trolling? Because I know this this isn't necessarily just a female problem. Because I think MPs, you know, I, I look sometimes at the tweets that Sadiq Khan received, and they're absolutely vile. Like there's so much like racism to add, you know, being a female MP, but also from a human element, I I felt so vulnerable as a new mum, um, and I felt a lot more. Um, sensitive about um, criticism that um, people gave me because I feel like when it beforehand, I, I mean, it affected me trolling, but not as much as it did after having a baby, but whether it was like, you know, my appearance or the way I parent. Um, and I mean, you get it, you get it a, a staggering amount. And I do really want to talk to you about this, um, you know, making misogyny a hate crime, which I know people just see it as like sticks and stones will break your bones and we all need to grow a backbone and stuff. But like, how do you cope with it? And also from a human element, like how do you deal with like the constant backlash when you're trying to do good things like with maternity discrimination and maternity cover? And so I think you have to separate it all out. There's, there's definitely banter and robust debate. And I sometimes, I'll, I'll clap back at people. I'm human. And I think it's quite important that we don't ask our politicians to be patient saints because, you know, that way hell lies. I mean, all of us go, you must have a point when someone writes something and you just think, oh, sod off. <laughs> I also think you have to separate that. So the misogyny stuff is about things that are existing crimes. If you're sending somebody a rape threat, a death threat, intimidation, abuse, that is already illegal. Um, and it's not free speech because you can't have free speech if 50% of the conversation is living in fear about what you might do next given what you say. And that's not a debate. That's not, that's not any, like I, I keep saying to people, I've had it in the last 24 hours because I've been trying to talk about mums on Mumsnet, but obviously there's a lot of people on Mumsnet who are very interested in trans rights issues. And, and they got very cross with sort of saying about having a, a kinder debate. And for me, a kinder debate is partly about recognising that one of the things that kind of macho patriarchal debate is all about is about killing the opposition and, you know, wham, land a killer blow. And therefore, you know, they're done for, they can never speak again. And actually, for me, the kind of idea about a be kind debate is to say, Do you know what, I might not have all the answers. I might be wrong. I quite like to hear what you have to say. I'd like to be able to explore it. I'd like to be able to ask some really stupid questions that, um, you know, might make me sound like an idiot, but they're the sorts of things coming to my mind. And I'd like to know at the end of it, there's enough respect here that even if we do still disagree, we can carry on talking. And that is, for me, a much more collaborative way, because like I learn stuff from people all the time. That's why I'm really nosy. I follow loads of people on Twitter and Facebook and social media, as well as in real life. Like I refuse to be away from these forums because I learn stuff and it helps me think things through. And yeah, sometimes you're going to have quite strong debates. You can't do that if you've got the equivalent of like 500 people screaming at you let alone things that are criminal offences and abuse. We have to take that stuff out of it, but we also have to say, what kind of debate do we want to have? And yeah, you know, you want some kitten pictures and you want some banter and you want some funny videos that you've seen as well, because that's humanity, isn't it? It's nice things to balance out. So I think it's really important to fight for all of those things because not just it, it's about the voices that you're not hearing, but it's about all the stuff that you could do together if we could get this right. And it really worries me that our politics, you know, when I first got elected in 2010, 
social media was still a relatively minor thing in politics and it was a little bit of a club you know and we would all sit around and, and there'd be a lot of kitten pitches not very much debating now there's like a lot of anger first and then people start asking questions and also because i think people can't see that there's 500 other people screaming at you and then they start saying oh you're ignoring me oh you're trying to and you're like i'm, I'm not i'm literally one person like one of the things that I would want to say to people is, I don't, I don't have anybody else to do my social media. I'm not on those weird people. Do you see those people who put like their, their um, initials at the end of a, of a tweet or something? I, it is me. It's me with my phone. It's me when I get a moment to read stuff. So if you are bombarding me with hundreds of messages, like I'm a normal human being, I can't cope with all that much. So I, I probably don't engage in a way that, you know, if we can have that more kind of collaborative, more interesting debate, actually I will do because I'm going to learn something. Like it does need to change because it's harming all of us because we're not getting the best out of each other for it, um, which is separate from are there people trying to intimidate, harass, silence people and using social media to do it? And that I think like the, the misogyny campaign that we're doing, it doesn't create any new crimes. It just recognises what drives crime. And that's the same online as well as offline. You know, the people who are that abusive online, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that that doesn't stay online. It also comes to other parts of their lives. And that means they're quite potentially quite dangerous people. And if that were racism, then you're right. You know, the abuse that my colleague Diane Abbott gets is absolutely horrific. Uh, and Sadiq gets, I mean, so, uh, and David Lammy as well. Like, all of them have had serious police interventions now in how they're living their lives. And just think that that's awful. You know, if we create a politics, if we create a public life where only people who enjoy conflict, who are abusive, who are aggressive and are from a very similar background can speak out, it's going to be really dull, isn't it? I mean, it's just going to be a load of Piers Morgan's internal consciousness. And actually, that just gets quite boring after a while, doesn't it? Every time you try and talk about online trolling or let's even just talk about specifically this campaign to make misogyny a hate crime, you always get people clap back by saying it's free speech it's freedom of speech how do you separate the two because i feel like even in parliament you know like why are you having to fight to make misogyny a hate crime surely misogyny should just be a hate crime is it going back to this sort of like you know public school locker room sort of banter that it's like oh it's just harmless fun we have an equality law in this country which has a list of what we call protected characteristics things that we say actually these are just an element of who you are so your race your religion, your sexuality, you know, and you can't be discriminated against on those things in a workplace. You can't just say, right, because, because you're gay, that means that we're not going to promote you. That's, that's wrong. And we also say in law, if you get attacked simply for being who you are, we should recognise that. And that means that both the police have to record it, which means they get data on where it's happening, that can help detect those crimes. But it also means our courts can send the message going, if you are targeting gay people for abuse, for assault, then that in itself will have to carry a tougher penalty. The one thing we don't do is cover someone's sex or gender. So the one thing we don't say is to, to women, well, if someone is attacking you just for who you are, that's wrong. Um, so we know that, you know, most women have experienced sexual harassment and abuse and very few of them report it. And the reason a lot of women will tell you they don't report it is you don't think anyone's going to do anything about it. About five, six years ago, the Nottinghamshire Police Force started to change that. So they started to record where women were coming forward saying, look, I was targeted. Um, just because for, so for, by, we know that misogyny drives crimes against women. So, you know, I was just targeted for being a woman. 
And what that's done is it's helped them with detecting crimes, but it's also helped women feel like it's worth coming forward because you're adding to the police knowledge about what's going on in a local community. And, you know, and this wasn't catcalling. This was like serious sexual assaults. It was rapes. It was kidnaps that women were fine feeling confident to come forward and report. And critically, it was women from minority communities in particular, because right now in this country, if somebody targets, say, Jewish women for abuse, they're targeting both for being Jewish and for being a woman. But our hate crime law says, oh, no, it's just because you're Jewish. So it asks them to fit a box rather than saying, well, who are you and why why, why, what can we do to protect you from, you know, what can we do to, to catch this person, catch these people? Um, so adding in sex or gender to our hate crime laws doesn't create any new crimes, but it gives the police that set of tools that we know in the police forces, about a quarter of all police forces now in the country who are doing it, and it is having an impact. It's changing the way in which they're dealing with violence against women. And frankly, I think all of us are looking at the police and how they deal with violence against women and saying, well, something really big has to change, like the culture of the police has to change too. But what we also want to do is give the courts the ability that where a crime has been motivated by that hatred, just in the same way that if it's motivated by hatred of someone's skin colour, then we can recognise that in sentencing. Um, and it's an amendment in, called the New Love Amendment. Why doesn't it exist already? It seems such an obvious thing. Well, but you see, this is the thing, isn't it? It's like misogyny is so inbuilt into our society, sometimes we don't recognise it. I'll give you a really good example of this, because I only really worked this one out recently. So indecent exposure, so flashing somebody, is illegal if you do it to cause harm or distress. It's not actually illegal if you do it for your own sexual pleasure. So if some guy flashes you on a train, he has a defence of saying, oh, well, I was just enjoying myself. Think that one through for a moment. Like, you have to be distressed for him to be in trouble. Not in of itself, that element of power, that element of abusing a woman's freedom just to be able to get on a train and not be presented with a penis, you know? <laughs> so it's so inbuilt in our law that men are entitled to certain forms of behaviour that actually when you start unpicking these things, we've just recently won um, an amendment to the law to make it illegal to photograph a woman breastfeeding without her consent. Because it used to be perfectly legal. And in fact, I, I had it happen to me with my first kid. And there was a brilliant campaigner, Julia Cooper, who um, actually, you know, when it happened to her, she challenged the guy. He refused to take the photographs of his camera. And then she got went to the police. The police said, well, there's nothing we can do. It's not illegal. And when we raised this with the government, they were like, oh, yes, but what happens if a man is taking photographs of his wife on a beach naked for his own sexual entertainment and he accidentally photographs a woman breastfeeding in the background? And he thought... I'm going to stop you there and reel back and say, did you really just say this in Parliament as an argument? <laughs> did you actually just come up with this scenario? <laughs> and it was like the, the whole thing was predicated on protecting these poor men and their enjoyments to their wives as though there was some kind of toy. Um, I mean, you just think like the, the, the husband who accidentally photographs a woman breastfeeding and doesn't delete it probably isn't going to be a husband for much longer anyway. But <laughs> it was just, it speaks to misogyny is so ingrained in our society that lopsided way of thinking about who you act in favor of and what whose rights you protect of course we've never thought about well hang on a minute why do we protect women from discrimination in the workplace but as soon as they walk out on the streets of this country it's a free-for-all um, and the consequences are the violence and the culture that we see um, i'm not telling you that making misogyny part of our hate crime law is going to be a silver bullet 
But I do think it will start to change cultures within the police. I think it will start to change cultures in the CPS. And I think it will start to change wider society in the same way that hate crime law around race and religion. You know, if, you, if I think, I mean, I'm, I'm 44. If I think about some of the things that were on telly when I was a kid now, we would rightly say, Jesus Christ, that's really racist and it should be illegal <laughs> because it's a form of race hate. Um, and I think hate crime legislation has been part of that cultural change in calling to attention the impact on victims of people being able to perpetrate those sorts of offences without any accountability. And I, I'd love, I think over time, this could be part of that change. Where are you drawing the line with misogyny? Like what counts as misogyny? Like is it catcalling? Is, are you, is it part of the campaign to make catcalling illegal? Well, catcalling is already illegal, though I do support the calls for a, a clearer public sexual harassment offence, because I think the fact that people are questioning shows that we probably do need to be clearer that it is an offence. I mean, it, it, there's a threshold test in the law about any offence. Um, so, you know, if you start shouting abuse at somebody, if you start shouting racial abuse at people, for example, there is a threshold that you have to meet. It would be the same on misogynistic abuse. Um, but I think particularly for me, it's this concept of being able to recognise where, you know, not all crimes driven by misogyny are about intimate or sexual violence. If I think about, so we had a, a scenario in my community a couple of years ago where there was a gentleman going around attacking Muslim women and pulling their hijabs off their heads. That was a misogynistic as well as a religiously motivated form of hate crime. And being able to recognise that and being able to say, well, that is a form of assault. So there's already an existing crime but by approaching it as a hate crime, we're drawing all the evidence we've got about where it's happening together. We're telling victims we take it seriously and we will sentence accordingly. And that's where I see the benefit of this. So hate, you know, harassing somebody in the street is already a crime. It's a question of whether you meet that threshold. It would be then for the courts to decide whether what you were doing was misogynistic in the same way the courts have to decide whether what you're doing is racist. So there isn't a test in law that says, oh, well, this is what racism looks like you present the evidence to the courts. Um, so that, an example, so I was working on the upskirting legislation saying well, we should have a misogyny penalty on that because you could probably present evidence if somebody had particularly targeted women for upskirting that it was misogynistic. Um, but it would be for the courts to decide whether they agreed with you based on what people would understand as misogyny. See, that's crazy to me because I remember when I um, kind of stepped into the public eye it was so normal that you know when you were getting into a taxi after an event that perhaps would try and um get photos up your skirt and i remember all being mortified but again it was that kind of it was that sort of um guilt that if it did happen to you that was your fault because you were wearing a skirt that was too short or you were silly or you'd got too drunk and i remember like being horrified at the fact that that was even allowed and also when people were campaigning to make it illegal that there's there's always seems to be so much push pushback like people don't understand kind of like the how intimidating it is and it's like with catcalling how it's always brushed aside as like just being harmless or a compliment and so it's really hard to have like the serious conversations because i feel like the media always just want to like belittle catcalling to like brush over the whole thing of um sexism and misogyny but that's where i think like just the same, stopping people and going, well, hang on a minute, let's, let's just talk that one through, shall we? Like, you know, you are fighting for the rights. I mean, I've always said I'll stop campaigning to include misogyny and hate crime when I go to a wedding and the bride gets up and says, well, he followed me down the street screaming about my tits and wanted me to get into the back of a van with him. And I just thought it was the most romantic thing ever. Like, it's not a compliment. It's a form of abuse. 
people are calling out. What I find frustrating is my local police are very proud that they're running education events with men about this. And I'm like, we don't educate people that burglary is wrong. Like it is a crime to harass and abuse women in the street. We don't say, oh, men don't realize. Like lots of men don't catcall women. Lots of men do get that it is creepy and unpleasant. So we shouldn't let people off the hook that somehow this is just a kind of cultural thing. It's not, it's a crime. What I think is brilliant about the Our Streets Now campaign is they're wanting to clarify the law so that it, there's a really clear boundary, but we shouldn't walk away from the idea that there was already a boundary or that that somehow, like you say, that it's like a, it's a compliment because somebody rolls down the window and starts wolf whistling at you and following you in a van. Like, no, it's really frightening. <laughs> I think like the really hard thing for me about misogyny is it's so built into so many women as well. Like, you know, even I breastfed online and a lot of it wasn't even a conscious decision. I breastfed on the Jeremy Vine show and that was purely because I was invited to go on the Jeremy Vine show I could, I was breastfeeding. So probably like similar story to you, I either chose not to do it and potentially missed that kind of like opportunity and might, might not get called up again, or I did it. And of course, Alf is, was too young to understand when we're on air, when we're not on air, he just needed to feed. And so I fed him. And there's always this huge pushback and especially from women where they say, um, but what he's going to, he'll get bullied when he's 15. You're going to, you're causing him psychological distress. Like, <laughs> How do you explain to other women, especially like mums, that, you know, wh why should somebody get bullied when they're 15 for the fact that they were breastfed and there's pictures of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I, I recognise and I, I, I hear you and I, I know exactly what you mean because it is difficult because sometimes other women can be their own worst enemies, you know, that we, we tell ourselves that this is just how it is and everyone's making a fuss and there are bigger fights to have. I feel very strongly, uh, like however critical people have been, women are entitled to do mothering how they want to. Like you do it how you want, I'll do it how I want. And actually what we're fighting for is a space to have the conversation to say, does it work for everyone? Because I, like it is, there's so much mum shaming out there. Um, and, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's the only thing I do to embarrass my son in my life, given with my, my bad music taste and my poor jokes is to have talked about breastfeeding him, then he's got off lightly, I think. But it is really important that we start creating a space where we're saying, actually, it's okay to not play along with this, to not say, this is all so terrible and women are letting the side down. It's okay to talk about this. And one of the things I've been really heartened by is as much as, yeah, going out and campaigning on this, people have been quite cruel and, and, and <laughs> you know, there has been people who've said things and you say like colleagues and people who challenge you, but there's also been a lot of women who said, okay, thank you. Now you've done it. And now you've said actually there's a space I can add my voice to it. And the, you know, the way that we stop the mum shaming is the mum celebrating and saying, well, hang on a minute. You know, this is part of part of life. Like, like you say, I don't know a single baby that will work to a timetable and go, oh, fair play. I, I took, um, I took my son on TV to try and talk about PMQs and he just wasn't having any of it. Absolutely cried the place down. And yeah, absolutely. I was mortified and trying to work out to be quiet and they went to a commercial break and all that. But you know what? That is an entirely human experience. Um, and I just think we've got to be really careful to make sure that we 
grow and nurture that space where people can talk about all of this. I mean, that's why we set up the Listen on Votes hashtag to get people to talk about their experience in the workplace, because once you start it, people can't stop. And actually, your experience is not a unique experience. You're very powerful for going out there and doing it. What can mums do who, or mums-to-be, who are feeling like they have to choose between becoming a mum in their career or they're experiencing um, discrimination in the workplace or, you know, feeling like they're being overlooked in opportunities? What what can they do like to get and help get more women in, in power? First and foremost, we can all say a prayer and a hallelujah for the existence of Pregnant and Screwed because Jolie Brearley is a living legend who walks amongst us as far as I'm concerned. She's an amazing woman who experienced maternity discrimination, pregnancy discrimination, and turned her anger about it into an amazing organisation that now campaigns on these issues, but also crucially provides legal advice. So first and foremost, if you are experiencing any form of maternity discrimination or pregnancy discrimination, please do get legal help because you do have rights. I mean, we're talking like we don't, I might not have them in Parliament, but actually there are really important rights and we've really got to fight to protect them. Um, secondly, please do sign up for This Mum Votes. It's thismumvotes.org.uk and we are running lots of events, seminars. We want to get people talking to their parliamentarians about it, also talking to their employers about it and saying, well, actually, you know, this is really bad for our economy because we're losing loads of really talented women from workplaces because our workplaces don't reflect modern life, but other workplaces do. So, you know, good employers will lose good people unless they change and our politics will as well. Um, and then thirdly, be kind, be a really good, supportive, interested person, because your experience of motherhood might be very different for somebody else's. And that's OK. But the point is, the experiences of motherhood right now aren't being surfaced, not being talked about. And we're all missing out as a result because it's creating a barrier to change. Um, so, you know, send a good kit and pick, sign up for a campaign and above all will be part of making change happen because everyone could do it. You don't need just a couple more MPs. We need a revolution. But but what I've learned is that there is a revolution out there. As long as we can have coffee and we can do it at times that make sense for us to be able to combine with everyday working life. And actually, that's an easy one to solve. But honestly, I feel like you are like the epitome of doing juggle and dress hats off to you to you and thank you for everything that you're doing and also obviously for taking the time to come on well it's amazing it's amazing what you're doing with your podcast and it's like the thing that's really interesting is in Westminster people think nobody's interested in mums no it's not a not a concern and we know out in the country for a lot of women this is this is that moment of kind of realization like you say and that moment of real frustration and kind of is this it and, and and how can I get help and what can I do and people might be having that conversation in their little whatsapp groups they might be having it in the park they might be having it when they go to baby class but they are having that conversation so that say so that revolution is there and people like you and the stuff that you're doing with your podcast are absolutely part of it so really thank you for having me I'm, I'm just excited to see hopefully lots of positive change and um also for people to realize that like you don't, you don't have to just become a mum when you're a mum and um yeah hopefully it'll get easier so um, i'm gonna let you go but thank you so much for your time and for chatting to, to me not at all thank you ashley i really appreciate it see so, yeah, i normally don't even let a guest go um before the very end of the podcast but i could see and hear that Stella is so busy and do you know what I love the fact that you can hear her kids in the background because I feel like when you're at work you have to pretend that you don't have kids and then when you're home you're expected not to work and I love that blend especially from an MP a female MP 
Um, and I actually just cannot believe that she came on the podcast. Um, I hope you guys found that interesting because, I mean, obviously I'm very political, but I feel like I don't know a lot about politics but I thought it was really interesting and I just think it's amazing everything she's doing and I just can't believe like to think of everything that I have gone through as a new mum with like I don't know things like prolapse and piles and leaky boobs and mastitis and you know that whole recovery and identity battle like the fact that Stella I say it's chosen to do it but I guess like she said she hasn't had a choice to do it but the fact that she has gone through all of this that we all go through the insomnia and still gets up because she like cares about her constituents and wants to make a difference I feel like you know we only ever really like hear about MPs when it's negative but it's really nice to think, you know, we heard about a lot of MPs just on holiday when uh, things like Afghanistan happened or not even living in the country. Um, and she's obviously so committed to being an MP and representing her constituents that she basically didn't get maternity leave and interest in that expectation that she had to do that to prove her job. But, you know, whether you choose to breastfeed or not, like you, you if you're breastfeeding, it's like, you know, me going on TV, you can't. You can't just like leave your child and hopefully she's like breaking down barriers and helping people um, to realise that you can do both. But I just want to really um, briefly uh, touch on the Apple podcast reviews because I've been reading them and I honestly, um, it's just so, so nice and reassuring to read such nice things about you loving the podcast. So um, I just wanted to read one from Jess who said, um, I so look forward to each episode. Thanks for being so honest and sharing the ups and downs of motherhood. I'm totally on this journey with you. I love your approach to postpartum body image and you've made me feel so much more confident in my new stretchier skin. Um, I love that. Yes, to being more confident in our bodies, even like pre or postnatally, but especially postnatally, because let's be honest, like our bodies are doing a lot for us. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening to Mum's the Word, the parenting podcast. I can't believe I had an MP on my little parenting podcast. Um, make sure to hit the subscribe and follow button so you never miss an episode. And yeah, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, if you do leave a review, then um, I can always read it out. Or um, you can also get in touch on WhatsApp where you can send a free voice message. And- um, on 075-999-27537. Let me know what you thought of this episode, if it made sense to you. <laughs> um, and talking and spreading the news and um, telling another person about it and help us reach more people. And I'll be back next week, same time, same place. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.